So if you remember in 1 Corinthians, Paul, when he writes to them, he begins the letter by praising them. He tells them, uh, he says, look, I'm so thankful that you guys have this knowledge of God, that you don't fall short of any gift. He, he, He encourages them that he's assured that they are his fellow brothers and sisters. Corinth was a church that Paul planted. Paul was uh, someone who, who was going around, he was planting churches in different areas of Asia Minor, what we'd call modern-day Turkey, and Corinth was one of those places where he planted a church. But Corinth had a lot of issues. It was often quite carnal. They had problems with uh, immorality. There were people in Corinth who, who felt they were so free in God's grace that they could ignore God's standards of morality. So you had issues happening there sexually that weren't even named among unbelievers. You had a man sleeping with his stepmother, basically. You had all these kind of horrible things going on. You had these brethren who would fight so fiercely with each other in the same church that they were suing each other, taking them to like court over things. It was, it was a fellowship that, though they fell short and no gift, There was a pride in who exercised their gift the best way. Paul kind of referred to it in this section. Where there would be those who felt they were hyper-spiritual, so they would push their gift to the front, or they would exercise it in a way that would draw attention to themselves. And so Paul loved these people, he was committed to these people, but these people had some serious problems. And even after Paul corrects them when he writes 2 Corinthians, they, they, they make the corrections, but they're kind of almost frustrated with Paul that he called them on this. In fact, Paul would say later on in 2 Corinthians that the more I love you, the less I'm loved. But I, he would say, I'm still willing to spend and be spent for your souls. So when we read these words and we see there's a bit of a, there, there's a, bit of a sharpness to them, we don't want to forget Paul's heart. We don't want to forget the context. That these are people that... Yeah, they're they're real believers, but they had some real issues. And Paul, because he loved them as their their first pastor, wanted to make sure that they corrected these issues. Now, one of the issues, of course, was how they approached communion or the Lord's table. Now, in the early church, what they would do, you see this pretty clear in the book of Acts, they would gather together quite often. Different uh, Bible scholars will debate about how often they would do this part. But they would gather together and they would have a meal together. It was eventually became to know, be known as the agape feast or the love feast. And what that would do would be a time for them to come together, to eat together. Eating in that culture was a big deal, specifically in the Jewish mindset. You only ate with people that you considered you wanted to be one with. So that's why a lot of the Jews wouldn't eat with Gentiles. But when the gospel came in, they knew they were all one in Christ. And so they would eat together, Jew and Gentile. They're one in Christ. And the sort of the pinnacle of the feast they would have, the agape feast they would have, would be going to the Lord's table. It would be following through with what Jesus established for for his church with his apostles on the night that he was betrayed. So the night that he's going to be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, you guys know the story. Jesus is having the Passover feast, a Jewish feast, with his Jewish disciples as a Jewish man that Jesus was. And he kind of adapts that feast. He kind of takes it and says, listen, I'm fulfilling the Passover. And he begins to kind of unpack that to them. And part of that is he takes the fourth cup of that feast and says, this is the cup of the covenant in my blood. Now, if you remember the Passover feast, what had happened was when God's going to bring his people out of Egypt, they've been slaves in Egypt for 400 years, what happens is 
he, he, he calls Moses to tell Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, hey, let my people go. Pharaoh doesn't like that idea. It's free slave labor. He didn't want to let those guys go. And so God has to force his hand by bringing these plagues. And at first, Pharaoh says, oh, okay, I'm sorry. We'll let the God's people go. Then he hardens his heart. And so God has to send another plague. And this happens over and over again until finally it says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart because Pharaoh just basically refuses to believe. And so the last plague that happens is what's called the death of the firstborn. And what happened is God said he's going to send the angel of death all over Egypt and every firstborn in every household will die. Whether that's the firstborn calf or the firstborn son. Every firstborn. And the only exception would be those who, in obedience to what God had said, would take a spotless lamb, they would slay that lamb, and they would apply the blood of that lamb to the lentils or to the doorposts of their home. And wherever the blood of the lamb was applied, the angel of death would pass over and not bring death. And they were called to consume the lamb in haste. They were called to roast the whole thing, entrails and everything. They were to uh, kind of dress as if they were about to take off quickly. They had to eat unleavened bread, no time to let it rise. Bitter herbs were, were a part of the feast. And it was this picture of what they'd been through and what God was calling them out of. God was going to deliver them quickly out of Egypt. And so this Passover feast, Jesus takes that feast and he adopts it and he says, look, this is fulfilled in me. And this, this blood is not just the blood of a Passover lamb, but I am the lamb. I'm the lamb. That's going to, it's going to be my blood that establishes this new covenant with my people that God's promised. So he does that on Passover. And so the early church would, would begin to celebrate this on a weekly, some say even a daily basis. They'd come together, have a meal together, and the pinnacle of that meal would be to take this Passover, or I'm sorry, to take this communion together. Drink the cup, eat the bread. Now the Corinthians were kind of happy-go-lucky carnal people. And what seems to be indicated in the context is that what they were doing is when they were coming together, they were seeing it as a chance just to gorge themselves. And so you had people among them that were coming and they weren't waiting to kind of enjoy the love feast together. They weren't waiting to partake as one. They were just gorging themselves. They were just filling themselves up. What's interesting about this too is that one of the operations of the love feast was it was meant to be a way that the rich and the poor could be at the same level. It was, it was basically in a real sense a bring and share. And you had the rich who could bring much and the poor who couldn't bring much, but everybody could eat the same. It was a picture of the oneness that we have in Christ. And so you have people coming in, whether they're rich or poor, to Texas and say, and they're gorging themselves. Paul's going, what are you doing? This is not at all reflecting what this feast is supposed to be. And they, of course, with their communion, uh, would use real wine. There's nothing wrong with that. The only reason we don't do that is in case somebody has a problem with alcoholism. We don't want to stumble anybody. But there's absolutely nothing wrong with using real wine. They would use real wine. But what would happen? Hey, there's lots of wine, lots of people for the, for the communion service, for the agape service. So what was happening? People were coming early. Oh, free wine. Boom, boom, boom. And they were getting drunk. And Paul's saying, you don't get it. This is not what this is for. What are you doing? And so he has to really confront them. It's interesting. If you look in verses uh, about 17 to 19, 
that Paul brings up this issue of, look, there's got to be big problems there. There's got to be obviously divisions, or as he calls them also, factions among you. He says in verse 18, I'll read it again. He says, when you come together, I hear that there's division, and in part I believe it. And here's why he believes it. He says, verse 19, for there must also be factions among you. The word for factions is a word heresy. We use that word to mean somebody who believes something that's not orthodox. But in this context, it just means somebody who's, who's exalting their doctrine above everybody else's. Now, this is important. It's important especially for a church like ours. Because in case you hadn't noticed, we are a diverse group of people. Different uh, ethnicities, different backgrounds, different accents, different social economic levels, different education levels, different church backgrounds. And it's tempting for us in a place like this, especially if we feel any bit of discomfort, to kind of just find who we're comfortable with, and if we do that too long, you know what happens? We begin to exalt our little sect. That's a faction. And when that happens, what we end up doing is we end up not displaying the very gospel of Jesus. Because here's the, here's the good news of Jesus. The good news of Jesus is, is that through His sacrifice, through His death, through His resurrection, through His ascension, he makes it possible for us to be one with Him forever. Our God is one, right? That's the, that's the Shema that they used to say in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the, the most important thing that the Jews would say with their families on a daily basis. Behold, Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so this oneness, your God is oneness, we're to display the oneness of God and that we've been brought into the oneness of God through Christ by what? Being one, being unified. And that happens not because we all decide, okay, let's sit down and plan out exactly what we're unified around, but then we realize, listen, we want to exalt Christ and humble ourselves under His headship and exalt Him, not our own little pet doctrines or ideas or cultures. And so Paul's saying, listen, I know this is a trend, and so I kind of believe when I'm hearing that you guys are divided against each other. Now let me just say this. One of the coolest things about being in Servants Church, we talk about this all the time in leadership, is how we are so diverse and we still have great unity. It's, it's awesome. We love it. Now we can grow in that more, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying, okay, you've arrived, people. You don't need to grow. No, we can grow in that. But it is great that we have this great diversity and still have this unity. But we need to be aware that this can easily, be, this can easily fall apart. If we don't keep our focus on Jesus, if we don't keep our knees on the ground in, humil- in humble prayer, if we don't keep our nose in the book and wanting to submit ourselves to what God says in His Word, we can easily exalt one faction above another. And in doing so, we have to realize the consequences are not just that we're not as close to each other as we could be. The consequence is that we don't demonstrate the gospel as it is. And so Paul tells the Corinthian church, look, this, this is something you need to think about. Now, he's really clear with them. He says, listen, he, he, in fact, he even says these words in verse 22. He says, do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? Now, can you imagine if if when they came together, you had, and I say this as somebody who's known poverty in a Western sense. I, I realize that some of you probably have known poverty that I can only imagine, but 
I've known poverty in the Western sense of I've been homeless for about four weeks with my dad. That was not fun when I was about 14. And so knowing poverty, at least in a Western sense, I know the shame that comes with being poor. If you've ever felt like you were poor, you know what I'm talking about. The shame that like you can't afford the same clothes as everybody else or when people, in my case, when we were being homeless, people would say, where do you live again? You can't imagine what that would, kind of anxiety that would bring to me at the time. So there's a shame, whether we should feel it or not, there's a shame that comes with, when we're poor, we feel ashamed sometimes of being poor. And, and Paul's saying, listen, these people struggle, and then you're going to come and just glut yourself? When they're feeling like, okay, maybe I shouldn't eat because I didn't really bring that much. This is why we stress, and this is a kind of a meager application, but this is why we stress to you. Listen, if you didn't come, I'm sorry, if you didn't bring anything, please still stay. Not because we want to shame you, just the opposite, because we want you to you know it's God's provision, not ours. We want you to be here. And I say that today. If you didn't bring anything to share, don't worry about it. We, we always have extra. We always go and get extra. Stay. Enjoy. But the point is, is that Paul is, is really, he says, look, I'm, I'm not going to praise you in this because this is a serious issue. Then he lays out the instructions. This is something that we should be thinking about every time we have communion, whether it's a fourth Sunday here as we do it or the second Friday night at Big Group when we do it. We should be thinking about these things in verse 23. Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Paul's saying, These are not my instructions. These are instructions from the Lord. This is what the Lord Jesus would have us do. This is not Paul, the apostle, instituting some sort of tradition in the church. Though if he did, he had authority to do so. But it's clear he's saying, I've gotten this from the Lord. This is what we are to do. He says that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. Why is it important that we remember that Jesus established communion on the night he was betrayed. Because he did so for everyone. You see, all of us are guilty of being like Judas. We've all betrayed the Lord in one way or another. Especially before we came to faith, we were in a place where we were enemies of God. We, God had given us every good and perfect gift. This is what the scripture clearly says. Every good thing in our life is a gift from God. And we refused to give him glory for it, to give him thanks for it. But we serve a God who loves his enemies, who pursues his enemies, who offers the way of reconciliation so that those enemies can be friends, not just friends, but family. So it's important for us to remember that because when we come together, let's be honest, sometimes we come together and there's tension between us. We feel we've been betrayed. We feel like people haven't treated us well. Maybe the betrayal is just people ignoring us, not remembering our name, not seeming to care that we haven't been here in four weeks. And that feeling of betrayal can make us feel like, well, okay, I'll go through the emotions, but am I really one with these people? But Jesus establishes on the night he was betrayed. He allowed him, himself to be broken so that we could be one. 
He loved us when we are his enemies, therefore he calls us to love one another, even when we make enemies of each other. It says, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and then he said, he gave thanks. So this is more than just sort of like someone has to say grace, we're about to eat, okay, thanks God for this food, blessed to our bodies, you know. This is bigger than that. This is Jesus giving thanks to the Father for what the Father is about to do through the cross. Think about that. We, we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? You know that, that what I'm talking about there when he's just after the time when he would be establishing communion, he would leave this upper room and he would go to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. He would go to this place where he'd often took in his disciples to teach them. And he would go and he'd pray. He'd kind of go a distance away from the, the main group with the three, Peter, James, and John, and then he'd go a little bit distance from them and he would pray. And he would pray, God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. If is there any other way to the cross, let this cup pass from me, but not my will but yours be done. That's Jesus praying in his perfect humanity, surrendering to God his Father. But Jesus also, in his, his real deity, was one who knew exactly what the Father would accomplish through his death. Because the scripture says Christ was crucified before the foundations of the earth. So that even in God's plan to create, there was God's plan to redeem. The death and resurrection of Jesus are plan A. They're not like, oops, I made the world, they messed it all up, I better fix it now. No, God knew what would happen and he always had the plan to redeem it through his son. So Jesus, when he gives thanks, he gives thanks knowing what the Father is about to do, knowing the Father is going to reconcile these men to him. He's going to bring in his church. He gives thanks for that. One of the things that's good for us to do when we take communion is remember that. Remember the willingness of our God to provide a way for us to be right with him. There was no hesitancy in God to save us. There's no hesitancy in God to sacrifice. That was always his plan. He gave thanks for it. Thank you, God. This is going to happen. It's going to get done. He says, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. His body broken so we could be one. He says, notice, do this in remembrance of me. This is interesting. Because Jesus could have said, do this in remembrance of it. The act of crucifixion. But he didn't say that. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Now Paul, the apostle who wrote this, also wrote a book to the churches in Galatia. It's called Galatians. And when he wrote that book, one of the things he says in there about himself, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so, Paul, when he says that to the Galatian church, he's acknowledging that he has this position with Christ. A crucified and resurrected position. And that position is based on the fact that he's been made one with Christ. He, he, he's, it's a daily acknowledgement. I'm in union with Christ. I've died with him. I've resurrected with him. And so now I can walk by faith in him. 
And so Jesus says, when you establish communion, he says, do this in remembrance of me. Not just the act, but the person. Because thousands upon thousands of people were crucified, some of whom were innocent victims. But none of them were God's only begotten Son. And none of them could provide anything for anybody else. But Jesus, being God's only Son, being the both 100% man, 100% God, the perfect sacrifice, He could provide for us to be right with Him. And that provision is ours as we abide in Christ. We abide in that provision. We are connected to that. So what we're doing and we're remembering is remembering Him. Lord, You've already provided. All I need to do is abide in You. I just need to abide. I just need to enjoy, to appreciate, to reckon the reality of my union with you. So when we do communion, that's what we're doing. We're not saying, we're not going, okay, I remember 2,000 years ago he, he was crucified. Yeah, that, was, that, was, that, was, that must have been tough. Yeah, we are remembering that, but remembering what that does, remembering him, that act of his crucifixion and resurrection means we can be unified with him. It says in verse 25, in the same manner he also took the new, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the cup of my uh, of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. Notice again, in remembrance of me. Again, not just that his blood was spilled then, but that that blood washes us from all sin. Do you remember what else Jesus did the night he was betrayed, the night he established communion? We're going to look at it uh, later on this year when we get to John chapter 13. When Jesus, what does he do? In that same meeting, in this upper room, he takes off his outer garments. He wraps a towel around him like the most common household servant. And he begins to wash their feet. He begins to wash the feet of the apostles. And you remember the story, right? He goes to Peter. Peter's like, you can't wash my feet. No way, Lord. I should be washing your feet, basically. And he says, Peter, if, you don't, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. Peter, Mr. Pendulum, goes, okay, okay, wash me all, everything, Lord. Dunk it over my head, you know, basically. Paraphrase. And so what happens? The Lord says, no, 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 you've already been clean. Just, you just need your feet to be washed. And there's a picture here that what happens is when Christ died on the cross, when his blood was shed, that shed blood paid for, that sacrifice paid for all our sin, past, present, future. So when we go to confess now, we're not confessing, Lord, be sacrificed again for my sin. That's what the, the Roman church teaches, but it's a, it's a heresy. It's not what the Bible teaches. No, we say not that we want Christ to be crucified again, but we acknowledge, Lord, that shed blood is enough. That's why we can believe when the Bible says that if we confess our sins, that God is both faithful, he'll do it every time, and just, he's right in doing it, to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness because that blood is sufficient. So when we're remembering communion, we're going back and saying, Lord, what you did is enough. It's always been enough. It will always be enough. And we're remembering that. And he says, for often in verse 26, as you eat this cup and drink this, eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. You see, in remembering Jesus, remembering not just we have a Savior that crucified, was crucified in our place, a Savior that was resurrected for our righteousness to make us right, but we have a Savior 
who we're not only in unity with, but also a Savior who's coming back. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but when you read Revelation chapter 21 and 22, and they talk about the new heavens and new earth, you realize what that is? It's God bringing heaven down. It's after we are resurrected and we get new bodies and we live on a resurrected earth. We can't even imagine how perfect it's going to be. How do we know it's actually going to happen? Because we look at what's going on on the planet now, we're thinking it's going to hell in a handbasket, literally. It's falling apart. Why would we have any hope that this world's going to be redeemed and that this is going to be where God chooses to dwell? Why would we have that hope? One, the Scripture says, and two, why the Scripture says, it's because of what Jesus has done. That's the guarantee. It's not because the church is going to get it right. We're going to struggle until we see him face to face. It's because Jesus has already provided it. So we proclaim that. Lord, we proclaim your death, the sufficiency of your death, your resurrection, until you come back. Now, thinking about all this stuff that we've talked about, can you see why maybe the Corinthians were tempted to party? Because it's worth celebrating, isn't it? And it should be. Communion should not be, the agape feast should not be a solemn occasion. It should be a celebration. Not a drunken stupor, but it should be a celebration. We should come together and say, Lord, we among all people are the most blessed. And, and we are one people because we have our faith in your Son and we're unified with Him. And every weirdness between us and every faction between us and every difference between us is to be completely redeemed when you see you face to face. It's going to be glorious and it's, going to be, and it's guaranteed because of what you've provided through your death and resurrection. Lord, we want to celebrate this together. This should be a celebration. This is why we have a meal. It's a time to celebrate. But it's also a time for us to be sober. It's a time for us to think about where we're at with the Lord. He says in verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of Jesus. You need to think how serious this is because Paul will go on later on to say in verse 30 that people weren't doing this and because they weren't taking uh, they were taking communion in an unworthy manner. It says, for this reason, verse 30, many are sick, uh, I'm sorry, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. And when it says many sleep, it doesn't mean they're taking a nap, it means they die. And it seems to be indicating here that there's a chastening that goes on. In fact, it says really clear, um, right, that we are chastened, verse 32, if, if when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we might not be condemned with the world. So it's not a it's not a death as in judgment and, and you, you're separated from God forever. It seems to be a chastening unto death. That's pretty sobering, isn't it? That God maybe would chasten us unto death. Now, the issue is, is this, okay? He says, if you take communion in an unworthy manner. Now, he doesn't say taking communion as an unworthy person. Anybody here worthy of communion? Me neither. None of us are worthy for the oneness that we've been given in Christ. It's grace. So an unworthy manner is not meaning I'm an unworthy person. I don't deserve this. We never deserve to approach God. An unworthy manner is what? As it says here, verse 7, it's not discerning the Lord's body. It's not discerning 
believing that what he did, he did once for all. Once for all sin, once for all men. That's an unworthy manner. This is why, again, and I, if you have a Catholic background, I'm not trying to pick on Catholics, I promise, but this is, this is one of the problems with the Mass. Because the Mass theologically says Christ is kind of re-crucified every time. And so that's why it's a big guilt trip on people because they're going, oh man, I don't want to crucify Jesus again. I'm supposed to love him. But he's not crucified again. It's not about re-crucifying Jesus. It, in fact, that's taken in an unworthy manner, I believe. Because a worthy manner recognizes what you did was enough. What you did was enough. What you did was enough. And so the sobriety comes in that when we gather together, and in just a minute the ushers are going to pass out the elements of communion, the little bit of unleavened bread or cracker, a little bit of grape juice. And when they hand that out, it's going to be a time for us to be still and reflect. Reflect on how sufficient the work of Jesus is. It's enough to cleanse you from all your sin. Not just things you've done wrong, but things you refused, you've refused to do that you know are right. The blood's enough. It's enough to provide the means of reconciliation between you and the people that you're not really getting on with. You can forgive because you've been forgiven. You can know they can be forgiven because Christ dies for all. It's enough. You see, I believe, my conviction is, taking the cup in an unworthy manner is being flippant about the sufficiency of what Jesus has done. Not believing it enough to go, Lord, this is great. Not believing it enough to say, Lord, I want to rejoice in you. Not believing it enough to confess every one of our sins and to reconcile with anybody because what Christ did is enough. That's an unworthy manner when we don't believe that.